Welcome everyone to episode 39 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Christopher Leonard. Christopher recently published the book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. And before that, he was the author of the award-winning book, Cokeland. Christopher, how's it going today? It's going great. Thank you for having me. I have to say, I, I slipped through your your PR machine because um, although my podcast is relatively small, your uh, your head of PR liked the fact that I was the head research assistant for Michael Lewis. So he, he granted me this interview. I was very appreciative. Fantastic. And as a guy where, you know, 70% of my job is slipping through walls put up by public relations department. I, I love that and commend it highly. And he was, he was feeling high that day because uh, the, the New York times review had just come out and compared you to Michael Lewis. Yeah, which is um, amazing, and 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 how cool that you work with him and and worked with him. I w- mean, worked, 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 worked. I, you know, whatever. I, it, it goes without saying, but I, I feel like every business journalist today is working in Michael Lewis's shadow, and and the reason why is is I think nobody is better at digging through these really complicated systems that mean so much to our lives and then being able to just explain them, not just clearly, not just in a way that everybody can understand, but in a way that's easy to read. And, and, and to be totally transparent, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's the goal I'm always hitting for. And when I thought of this book, The Lords of Easy Money, that, that was the exact goal of this book, is I wanted to write something that was relatively fast and short that somebody could read on a business trip in the hotel room at night when they're tired and and be able to read it quickly and have a very firm, strong grasp of what the Federal Reserve is and how it affects our lives and what it's been doing over the last decade and why it's so important. So, um, yeah, it's all uh, that that's all part of it. And, you know, Michael Lewis is the goat, as they say. (laughs) I I thought this was a tremendous narrative. I have a, a good Michael story. I don't believe I've ever told it on this pod, but it it gives you an idea of of how how good he is and deserving of his reputation he is. I I sent him one of my students senior uh, senior thesis. Her name was A.K. Barnett Hart, and she had done a thesis on the collapse of the CDO market. It it won the best undergrad thesis in the economics department. And I believe her advisor was Jeremy Stein. We can get into that later on when we go through the, so, but um, she won best senior thesis and it was a 120, 130 page work, pretty incredible. Um, And so I sent this to Michael and I said, uh, you should check out these sections. This is really well done. I think she actually found a data set that is not really picked through and you could learn a little bit from it. And he fired an email back late that night. He had read the entire thing and he actually found an error that no one had found. The advisor, her advisors hadn't found it. She hadn't found it. It was a, a mislabeled axes and he, he picked it out. I thought that was quite incredible. Uh, that's epic. And I mean, First of all, I think it's great for business reporters to aspire to be like Michael Lewis, but it's very like deflating and unproductive to try to be like Michael Lewis. There will only ever be one, right? But that is such a great example of 
the job, the job of the reporter is to be able to read through really good material like that, really great research that can be hard to read. I mean, some of it can be tedious, some of it can be technical, some of it can be complicated, but that's, you know, 80% of the job is to dig through those things and, and synthesize them and really understand them. And then to pretend like it's all very simple. And uh, I, I, I phrased that wrong to, to, to be able to write it in a clear enough way that people can grasp it uh, simply. Uh, what a talent. Some credit is due also to his editor, Janet Byrne, who uh, is a friend of mine. And I think one of the most talented editors out there, the, uh, the editor is, is worth a lot for the final product as well. No question. As you tell the story in this book, the Fed has not been a lifelong obsession for you. You, you understood around the time of the financial crisis that it was becoming a, a dominant force in American life. And you undertook then a study of the Fed, but it's not something that has dominated your career. Is this right? That's exactly right. And, you know, my career has been as a business reporter since 1999. So I cover big companies. I cover the economy. I approach business reporting in the same way that I think, you know, a state house reporter or someone who covers the White House approaches their subject, which is that I'm covering this on behalf of the public, in the public interest, and with a stance that's sort of the respectful adversarial stance is how I describe it. So that's sort of how I operate as a business reporter. And, you know, my first two books were about very large corporate institutions. My, my first book was about the agri agribusiness industry, and I was really looking at monopolies and monopoly power and how that affects our economy. And then the second book, Cokeland, was kind of a bigger take on corporate power in America today because that sort of balance of power between government and corporations is, is at the point where I believe corporations have more power than they've had since the 1900s, you know, the, the so-called Gilded Age. And I wanted to explore that by writing about one of the biggest corporations in the United States, Coke Industries. And, you know, back during the financial crash of 08-09, I had kind of read the crop of books about the Federal Reserve and, and the crash that kind of portray the Fed as, as the rescue operation or, or the financial firefighters, if you will. And I, I had a basic understanding, I think, of the central bank's role and how it affects our economy. Um, but, but to be perfectly honest, I, I didn't really understand what this institution, the Federal Reserve, was and how it operated and how truly important it's become to our economy uh, until about 2016, when I came across this really by accident. I was reporting really deeply and really vigorously on that book, Cokeland, which, which pushed me into this realm of reporting on financial markets, which might seem odd, but you know, Coke Industries has built a financial trading operation that rivals J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, or anything else on Wall Street. So I was talking to a lot of hedge fund type people and people who are very knowledgeable about markets. And I had the interview with this guy um, who talked to me on background anonymously, so I don't like to share his name or anything, but th this was the summer of 2016. And this guy was frankly just very concerned with what he was seeing. And he spent about five and a half hours 
walking me through what he was seeing in asset markets and elevated asset prices and explaining to me how the Federal Reserve had really broken historical trends, a broken the graph, as I like to put it, starting in about 2010. And one of the headlines that stuck with me was that during the first century of its existence, the Fed slowly and incrementally increased our so-called monetary base or, or that pool of, of high-powered new money that only the Fed can create. It expanded the monetary base to about $900 billion in a century. So that's like a trillion dollars in money printing, if you will, over 100 years. But then during late 2008 and mid-2014, the Fed prints $3.5 trillion, okay? Like three and a half centuries worth of money printing in a short period of, of a few years. And that fundamentally changed the entire financial system. No question about it that it changed our entire financial system. And, and that's when I became, frankly, obsessed with the Fed's extraordinary and experimental programs of the 2010s. So one book that I was reminded of was David Stockman's The Great Deformation, which came out, it seems shocking now, but 2012. And yes. uh, bizarrely, your book 10 years later was reminding me of that book. That book is behind me on the bookshelf, maybe out of view of the camera. Um, Mr. Stockman is such an interesting analyst. I mean, as you know, and your listeners know, he was in the White House in the early 1970s under Rick, uh, under Nixon. Well, no, during the 80s, too, under, under Reagan. He was, the, he was the budget director, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah. So the guy had a front row seat to, to a lot of these changes in our economic system and he's so interesting in that he's very keyed into a lot of these distortions created by central banking and, and, and what it's done. And, and that book, um, the great deformation was, was fascinating reading to me. And I, I don't want to like digress, but as I started getting into this topic and reporting it, I noticed two things, okay? And this is starting in about 2016. First of all, there was not a lot of good mainstream reporting around the Fed's extraordinary policies of the 2010s. And, and there are two key policies I'm talking about here. The first was the Fed's decision to pin interest rates to zero for about seven years, which was extraordinary. You know, uh, short-term interest rates had brushed up against zero a couple times in the past. Uh, but the Fed kept them pinned at that extraordinary level for almost a decade. At the same time comes the second policy, which is the so-called quantitative easing, which is a fancy way to talk about boosting the monetary base or printing trillions of dollars and injecting it directly into the banking system. That's what quantitative easing is. And so when you take these two programs together of quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, you create what the Wall Street types call ZERP or zero interest rate policy. They keep talking about the age of ZERP. And there wasn't a lot of great mainstream reporting around this. In my view, there wasn't like a book about quantitative easing. But then when you drilled down and got into the actual coverage of it, I felt like it was sort of segregated into these two broad pools. One was the sort of mainstream coverage, which was written, frankly, mostly for bond traders uh, about what the Fed was doing. Uh, 
And then the second group was, was this body of literature like David Stockman that was very critical of what the Fed was doing, that was raising a lot of warnings about what this would mean for the middle class in America. I mean, David Stockman's primary preoccupation is with how these policies are hurting the middle class. But I don't know why. I don't know why, but that body of literature, the sort of critical of the Fed, seems to kind of exist in its own silo. Uh, and, and I can't explain to you why, but but there's a deep literature, very skeptical criticism around the Fed that that's you know dominated by by writers like Stockman. It was a it was a great book, and I believe Stockman also worked in private equity for a while, so he had he had a view. Uh, <clears throat> On, on private equity as well, you, you dip into that a bit in this book when you're going over the background of Jerome Powell. I noticed you lit up a bit when I, when I mentioned the name Jeremy Stein. You have some interesting history in your book. Um, in, in 2011, as part of a compromise, when Obama was appointing two Fed governors, he, he appointed... A Democrat, Jeremy Stein, who presumably he thought he was going to be closely aligned with, and then a Republican, Jerome Powell. Uh, it's a fascinating piece of history. This is really actually a pretty critical moment in the book. Um, you know, part one of the book looks at the extraordinary decision on November 3rd, 2010, when the Federal Reserve embarks on, on this program of quantitative easing. And it really is a, a marker historically, because this is a moment where the Fed says, okay, we're not just going to be the lender of last resort and the firefighter in the midst of a financial panic, as happened in 2008, 2009. But this is late 2010. And this is the Fed saying, okay, we're going to essentially try to be the primary engine of economic growth in America. Okay, we're going to be the jobs program. And that's not something that the Fed was built to do. And I would argue it's it's supremely unfitted for that job because all the Fed can do is, is create new dollars. That's the Fed's superpower. They can create money. And, and the Fed's been using that power to, to an unprecedented extent. And, and so part one of the book looks at that decision to go down this path of, of extreme easy money. And then part two really document, documents the decade afterwards, which I call the, the ZERP era or, or the age of, of ZERP. And that decade starts you know, in 2011, 2012, with exactly that moment you just described, when you've got some new Fed governors coming onto the board of, of a liberal Harvard uh, economist professor named Jeremy Stein, and then a more conservative Republican guy named Jerome Powell, who, who just came fresh from the world of private equity, where he was very significantly involved in the creation, packaging, and sale of leveraged loans and this huge corporate debt market. What's so interesting is that Jeremy Stein and Jay Powell agree that this, this program of quantitative easing is dangerous. It's building up long-term risks in the system in order to achieve very small short-term gains. It's pretty remarkable to go back and, and read the debates inside the Fed at this time. You know, Jeremy Stein, Jay Powell, and then a third governor who I interview on the record for the book named Betsy Duke, who's a former banker from Wells Fargo, the three of them become 
what the Fed chairman at the time, Ben Bernanke, dubbed the so-called three amigos. Okay, These are three people on the board of governors who are saying, we have got to stop this program, essentially. Quantitative easing, uh, it, 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 it helps lower unemployment only a tiny amount. But what you're doing is you're inflating all of these markets in Wall Street by injecting so much cash directly into the banking system that, that what you're doing through that is creating these massive asset bubbles. You know, the Fed knowingly was stoking up stock prices, corporate bond prices, uh, and, and other asset markets. And as Jay Powell himself said, if we keep doing this, these, these prices are going to correct. We're going to have a crash. We're going to have a, quote, large and dynamic event, and we're not going to be able to control it. And so there, there was this real tension inside the leadership committee of the Fed with people like Stein, Powell, and Duke uh, warning not to go down this path. Presumably, when uh, Obama appointed Jeremy Stein, he wanted someone who was fully in his camp. Um, and then Jeremy Stein basically turned on Fed policy about as hard as someone as well-mannered as Jeremy Stein is going to turn on policy. Um, so do you think that that was just a misread by uh, the Obama administration? I love this topic and thank you so much for bringing it up. To me, here's what it reflects. The politics of the Fed is just absolutely scrambled and upside down, okay? Um, in, in 2011, when Obama appoints this guy, I mean, nobody would question Jeremy Stein's credentials as a very thoughtful, very intelligent, progressive economist who could be identified as being on the left or, or, or liberal in, in the modern way we think about it. But then when you actually have to get into the Federal Reserve and go into the, the boardroom in Washington, D.C. and sit down in the table and make these decisions about what to do, that's where the politics get, get scrambled, as I say. So let me just put it in this frame. Um, the so-called dovish stance at the Fed, they, you know, the Fed borrows this terminology from foreign policy of doves and hawks, and the doves are seen as folks who want to, you know, keep interest rates really low and push so-called full employment, bring down that unemployment rate through low rates, whereas the hawks are seen as this sort of conservative right-wing group that wants to raise interest rates to fight inflation. And, and the hawks don't care as much about unemployment. They're so-called hard money people. But this stuff breaks down really quickly when you look at the reality of what the Fed is doing. So let me please describe very quickly how quantitative easing works, okay? The quantitative easing is executed out of the Fed's uh, major office, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where there's this giant trading floor that I've, I've toured and, and walked along in, in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And on this trading floor, there's literally one room in the corner where a trader walks in, closes the door, sits down, and this trader will call somebody on Wall Street, like let's say JP Morgan. And the Fed trader says, hey, JP Morgan, I wanna buy $8 billion worth of treasury bills from you. JP Morgan says, fine, they sell the bills to the Fed. But then the Federal Reserve says, hey, check your special account at the Fed called the reserve account, look inside. The JP Morgan guy looks inside, voila, $8 billion has just appeared there out of thin air. 
That's how the Fed creates money. That's how the Fed, quote unquote, buys things, is it takes assets onto its balance sheet by creating new dollars inside these checking accounts on Wall Street that are called reserve accounts. And so to create money through quantitative easing, the Fed just replicates this transaction again and again and again and again until it has created trillions of new dollars inside the banking system. Okay, what the Fed argues is, hey, this is a way to stimulate the economy, right? We're, we're putting money into the system, we're, we're making money easy, we're encouraging loans. But when you actually operate on Wall Street, okay, when, when you're in that world, you understand that this money is not a neutral force. You know, this money can't uh, build a bridge, build a school, educate a worker, or do any of these kind of things we might associate with boosting growth. All it can do is stoke financial activity. And, and in, in the case of, of these programs, they stoked hyper-speculation. All of these dollars were chasing assets and, and thereby driving up the price of these assets. That's how asset inflation happens, okay? So you've got all these people dumping money into whatever kind of nice investment they think they can find, riskier and riskier investments as this high-powered money starts flowing through the system. So let's get back to our friend, Jeremy Stein. He's a reliable, progressive Democrat from Harvard. He's sitting at the table next to this Republican private equity guy named Jay Powell. And both of them are saying, folks, this program is not helpful is how I would put it. It's it's supercharging the Wall Street speculation, okay? It's supercharging asset markets, but we gotta remember that 40% of the assets in the US are held by like 1% of the population. This, this is increasing income inequality and it's creating fragility in the system because these asset bubbles inevitably collapse. So that's why when you have a, a guy like Jeremy Stein come in, he's raising the warning that, yes, he's a reliable liberal, but these, these programs at the end of the day don't truly support liberal causes. Uh, so I, you know, to me, it's really a reflection uh, of how upside down the politics of the Fed are. And another factor that's very important is people tend to come in with fresh eyes and criticize these programs. But then frankly, as happened with Jay Powell, they get worn down by the system and end up going along to get along with these easy money programs because it's a heck of a lot easier to juice money into Wall Street than to not do that. So, you know, eventually the Steins and Powells and Dukes of the world are overruled and these programs continue. Well, I would argue there that it is the institution itself that that pushes people towards dovishness. I think that that history is well established. Uh, Greenspan, for one, was quite free market. And something something about the institution itself being surrounded by the Fed staff economists it, it tends to push people towards dovishness. But one could argue that that Stein perhaps was less inclined to move in that direction because I think part of it is Stein is the smartest guy in any room, right? So he, he wasn't, he wasn't swayed by uh, the fed deep state as it were, right? Like the, the longstanding fed fed economists, whereas maybe uh, Powell moves, moves with the wind a bit. Um, 
There was also another thing going on, I believe, around 2011, 2012, which is that you had the mentality in Congress and in the Obama administration, never, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? So there was, there was a shift in spending regimes, right? And I, I'm a believer that over the very long term, the Fed is not a helping institution, but it's Congress that, that drives the train over the very long term, right? And so we can predict over, say, decades what Fed money creation will be by looking at deficits over the long term. That's just sort of my, that's a structural belief of mine. Um, but I think... I think one thing that was happening there is 2009, Obama wanted to run a $1.9 trillion deficit in his budget. What materialized was somewhat less than that, but he wanted to run very a very big deficit in 2009 and beyond. And so inside the Fed, they were faced with this issue of, well, we have to fund these deficits, these unprecedented deficits of one trillion plus and our trading partners like China that are running big surpluses with us will handle some of it. But at the new level of interest rates, the private sector doesn't seem willing to take on much. So um, the Fed's going to have to take on a lot of it. And I, I think that some of the, some of the thinking in the Fed is, well, we can call it stimulus, but we have to do it, right? We ha- we, ha- we we need to uh, basically buy a lot of bonds and monetize a lot of debt based on the level of spending that's coming out of Washington. So it was, in, it was interesting for Stein that in the, I believe that in the Harvard Economics Department, you had a weird tide there where you think about Ken Rogoff, for instance, right? Also, um, <clears throat> a very liberal economist, right? In terms of his politics. And he came out around this time with This Time is Different, the book that essentially documented the dangers of debts and deficits. Um, And um, I think around that time, there was a surprising amount of pushback where people like Stein who basically favored government spending if it was well-intentioned and well-implemented said that actually we're going too far and let's let's push back. Um, So it seems like uh, the Obama administration on accident got got what they wanted but uh, but Stein, I, I'm sure, was a regretful appointment for them. So much to unpack there. Um, and and I, I agree with what you're saying. First of all, they, they if they were disappointed in Stein, um, they could count on the Fed to pursue the policies anyway. I mean, um, I, I show how Stein, Powell and Duke together formed a coalition and tried to stop these easy money programs, and they were overruled. Um, ben Bernanke, who was the powerful 
Fed chairman. And I, I say powerful, like this guy inherited a very centralized chairman role from, from Greenspan and, and he, he really exploited it, to be honest. And, and there's simply no question that, that Bernanke was a politicker. He was a politicker. He would lobby uh, hesitant Fed governors. He would triangulate between governors. He could have one-on-one -on -one conversations between them. And maybe most importantly of all, you know, Bernanke knew how to use his bully pulpit. He would go out publicly and essentially say to markets, we're going to do quantitative easing, as he did in August 2012. And then that causes the market to react as if it's going to happen. So that if you're someone like Jeremy Stein or Powell or Duke and, and you want to stop it, well, now if you say we're not going to do this, markets will fall and the Fed's going to take the blame. So Bernanke was very smart in how he pushed his agenda politically inside the Fed. And you know, Stein was overruled. Um, you just brought up a I mean, a, a, a tremendous issue we could talk for a long time about, which is our increasing habit of funding our government operations through through deficits, which is enabled by a number of, of factors, the Fed being an increasingly important factor. And, and you know, this is kind of kind of scary stuff in the sense that, you know, what's happening, well, first of all, I, I must hasten to point out that the deficit spending is, is bipartisan. It's driven quite aggressively by Republicans as well, from George W. Bush through Donald Trump, uh, driven by Democrats under Barack Obama and, and Joe Biden today. And, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning that at, in 2019, at the end of that year, at the end of 2019, when, when things were probably about as good as they're going to be economically for a while, and the, the economy is growing, we were running deficits of, of a trillion a year, okay? And that's when the coffers were getting a lot of money from, from you know, economic growth, and you would expect us, you know, that was as good as the budget was going to be for a while, and it was a trillion short every year. That's fiscal, I, I you know, I, I hesitate to use the word insanity, but it's this fiscal idea that you can just borrow, 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 and spend that theory only works if there is a near bottomless appetite for United States debt, okay? Because when there's a near bottomless appetite for U.S. debt, you can get really low rates. You can borrow really cheap. And we've been in this position where that has been the case for a long, long time. The dollar is the global reserve currency. Uh, our, you know, The United States is the United States. But as you point out, there can be limits to that. I mean, U.S. debt is still a product we're putting out into global markets. And if people are hesitant to buy it, the rates will start to rise. We'll have to offer higher rates to entice people to loan us money. And, and when that happens, it, it's going to rearrange our entire financial structure. And, and to me, what I heard you say was that the Fed is increasingly stepping in as a buyer of United States debt which helps keep those rates low and subsidizes the borrowing. There's simply no question about it. And right now our government is running massive deficits. And you know, during some auctions at some times uh, in recent months, the Fed has been buying uh, about 80% of all the new debt. And, and this is this crazy situation where they're talking about monetizing debt in the sense that you've got the United States government borrowing money using dollars that the Fed just creates out of thin air and then takes the government debt onto its balance sheet. So the Fed is, 
is monetizing debt. And, you know, if, if, if I could just kind of turn the clock back a little bit, this book opens with this guy arguing against quantitative easing and 0% interest rates. This guy's Thomas Honig. He was a president of the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank. He was a big dissenter on these programs. And one of the arguments he made is that if you go down this road, the Fed's going to find itself trapped. Once you start buying U.S. debt at this level, you can't stop without creating a huge negative backlash in the markets. And that's exactly what we have seen. I mean, he was exactly right on that point. So, you know, big picture, I think you're very correct to talk about this tight link between are growing deficit spending and, and the Fed's ability to subsidize it by buying the debt. Tom Honig parts of the book are fascinating and he, he was very foresightful. Um, you mentioned though, that as the appetite for debt wanes, we might see rates increase. I don't think that that's the story that Honig would tell. I'm, I would be curious. And to me, if you take the forces in your book to the logical conclusion, we don't really go to that world. The logical conclusion instead is that um, the Fed continues to monetize deficits at any level and monetizes to an extent such that rates stay low, even if it becomes not a market in any sense of the world, in any sense of the word, but simply all debt is bought by the Fed. And, and we just have this system continue to whatever the political breaking point is. So to me, what you're describing are two separate paths, of course. And, and, and the path is, and first of all, if we could please, like before 0809, if you look back at the history of interest rates in the United States, it's not uncommon at all for the short-term interest rates and uh, which you know the Fed manipulates or targets. You know, short-term interest rates of three to four percent are really quite historically normal. Three to four percent is not a crazy high number. We haven't, you know, we've been at zero effectively since 2009. Okay, the Fed in 2016 tried to slowly and incrementally raise these rates. They got as high as the lofty level of two and a half percent. At which point, as the book points out, the system starts to melt down because all these all these arrangements made at a zero percent rate don't make sense at a two and a half percent rate for reasons we can talk about. But you got to unwind all your positions. So the Fed only got as high as two and a half percent and then brought it right back to zero. So the question you're you know, I, I, I see you as describing two paths forward. One path forward is. Um, the Fed tries to tighten or pull back this extraordinary stimulus, and it allows rates to rise up to two and a half, three, or four percent. And and that's the world whereby if if the Fed stops buying so much of our debt just directly out of hand, if, you know, if it stops monetizing the debt, and the United States debt is sort of exposed more to market forces and those interest rates start to rise and then the fed does not step in you know does not step in and say okay we're going to keep buying we're going to keep injecting this money 
that's when you see the scenario of interest rates starting to rise, which would create a ton of volatility in our country because more and more of our federal spending is going to have to go to paying off interest rates as, as opposed to funding services. That's one pathway, and it's going to be pretty painful and pretty volatile. But the other pathway you described is the Fed says, we're not going to let this stuff happen. We're going to just keep buying and buying and buying and and further entrenching ourselves in this. And we're not going to let gravity ever you know, impose itself upon the market. Well, okay, fine. Let, let's say you do that. Let's say you do that. Let's say the Fed says we're never going to you know, let these asset markets correct. We're never going to let interest rates rise. That has consequences. Um, and I can describe it really quickly, but you know, if, if there was simply no, no limit, no barrier to printing money and, and borrowing money, then everybody would be doing it. I mean, if that was the key to actual prosperity, everybody would simply print as much money as they need. But that's not, in my view, how the world has, has historically worked. When the Fed buys this debt, the Fed necessarily takes that debt onto what we call the balance sheet. They take it inside the Federal Reserve. Okay, when Tom Honig was opposing these programs and saying, don't do this, you're going to get trapped, don't do this. The, the Fed Reserve's balance sheet was about $2 trillion, okay? It was, it was $900 billion before 08 crash. It rose to $2 trillion. The Fed embarked on the quantitative easing uh, program, and the balance sheet rose to $4.5 trillion, okay? That's four and a half times larger than it had been before the crash. It was an extraordinarily high level. The Fed wanted to draw that down, and it never could. It, it got down into the $3 trillions, but the system melted down. Now our balance sheet is north of $8 trillion. It's north of $8 trillion. And, and so the commitment, the commitment of the Federal Reserve to step in and simply keep printing money to keep this system going, the commitment becomes ever larger. I mean, are we going to be looking at a $15 trillion balance sheet? And again, you got to get back to this question of like, okay, so what, who cares? Let's have a $100 trillion balance sheet. It doesn't matter, but it does matter for, for the, some of the dynamics I point out in the book. Uh, first of all, I mean, there's a breaking point somewhere. There's a red line after which people lose faith in the United States currency and we can't sell our debt anymore. Now, is that red line five years down the road, 20 years down the road? Is it a $20 trillion balance sheet? Is it a 10 trillion? We don't know. We seem determined to find that red line, but we don't know exactly where it is. But even beyond that, even if we just turn the clock back and look at the past decade, my argument is that these programs only fuel hyperspeculation on Wall Street they enrich the richest of the rich, the biggest of the big banks. They're expanding income inequality, and they're not, they don't promote a healthy economy. It's, it's money pumped into Wall Street that really doesn't help the vast majority of Americans who earn their living through a paycheck rather than by owning assets. I agree with you 100%. I'll play devil's advocate for just a please, moment, though. Please, okay. yes. Uh, Steve Eisman, who's a, who's a main character in the big short, he had an interview that I liked uh, late 
in 2019. And if you remember, that was a moment uh, post the repo interventions of September and post some uh, gradual increases in bond buying or some some minor increases in bond buying where the S&P was essentially melting up, right? And the melt up continued until the meltdown of, of COVID times. Um, and during, during that time, um, Eisman noted that a lot of, a lot of his contemporaries, smart guys were losing a lot of money in the markets, basically taking some short stances that were, that were burying them. And he said that he was inclined to do similar things, but he had learned to avoid it. He said that when he listened to the arguments of his, his friends, he found that sometimes it seemed like they were shorting for moral reasons. They thought that what the Fed was doing was bad. If you tried to come up with underlying emotions, they thought that what the Fed was doing was bad and irrational and one of the ways that they could take a stance against it was to short the most egregiously valued companies in the market. And well, those companies just kept going up. So Eisman decided that he wasn't going to short for moral reasons. He could disagree with the fed, but the fed was the fed and they had all the power. Um, and so when I listen to your arguments about the two paths, I feel like um, morally, if you're predicting the future, you want to say that the path is normalization and A, but uh, if you're going by the logic of the book of the power dynamics that you described so well, it's perhaps more likely to be the case that we just continue along this path. And I, 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 want, to, I want to compliment you. Uh, I was listening to a podcast you did a couple weeks ago, the We Study Billionaires podcast mm -hmm. and uh you had a quote that was just brilliant uh to me it was it was really the best summary of fed policy um you said that the nature of fed policy has been accepted in society because it doesn't antagonize any of the key power centers and that's, it's so simple, but it's so true, right? Although, although the policy has been um, bad or when viewed in historical perspective, it will likely be seen to be bad. Um, it has been continuing because it doesn't antagonize any key power centers. And so my question to you is, if unlimited debt monetization, basically Fed control of the bond market, as hard as that is, um, if that doesn't antagonize any key power centers, why wouldn't it continue? Great question. Um, I'll answer that question directly. God, there's just so much to unpack. I love that quote from, from Steve Eisman. It's fascinating. Why doesn't it just continue? And and gosh, one point I want to make is that, you know, first of all, people can completely, of course, disregard any of my views about any of this stuff or what I think ought to be done. The key 
the key mission of this book is to help more people understand what has happened. So we can at least be on the same page of debating which way we ought to go. I mean, you mentioned the so-called repo bailout of September 2019. It was a $400 billion bailout that basically nobody knew even happened. And it was bailing out a bunch of, of high risk appetite hedge funds that had made a lot of bad bets. We had a market meltdown. The Fed had to step in and pump $400 billion back into Wall Street. And sort of the tide of public attention just washed over it. And if there's one thing I could do, it is to try to get more information out there about what has happened in a concrete way. Okay, so first of all, that's uh, a, a big part of, of what I've been trying to do with this book. But your question is, uh, I think, morally, if what the Fed is doing doesn't antagonize any power centers, why not just let it continue? And and well, I'm I'm saying I don't think it should continue, but why won't it continue? Okay, why won't it? And and to be clear, a lot of my arguments aren't moral, um, in the sense that you don't raise interest rates because it's the so-called right thing to do. And I'm not emotionally attached to interest rates, you know, at all, at all. To me, as a business reporter, really, it is trying to like understand and explain why our economy is growing, but the gains are captured by a tiny group of people. We are seeing increased volatility in financial markets. It's like 100-year floods are happening with increasing frequency. I haven't checked in the markets, but when you and I started, the Dow is down about 1,000 today. Uh, stock markets are falling uh, in a pretty severe way. And this is right after the crash of 2020 and then back up the crash of 2010. Why would it stop? Why would it stop? Why not just keep doing it? And there's a, you know, the school of thought out there that says, hey, this can continue indefinitely. You know, you folks who try to say that there's sort of a limit to how much the United States can borrow or that, you know, interest rates need to be above zero. You, you know, folks who say that are simply unsophisticated, don't understand the new world, don't understand macroeconomics, you're Luddites, um, and, and this can keep going forever. Um, if that school of thought is correct, I mean, that would be wonderful. And I mean that sincerely. I'm not trying to be glib. If we could just uh, print as much money as we want, borrow as much money as we want, and, and have no consequence and, and stoke economic growth in this way, that's great. I mean, that would be wonderful. My sincere take is that it's not workable. And, and, and the last decade has proven that in a couple key ways. First of all, you know, Fed's money printing policies that subsidize debt don't encourage real prosperity. The, the decade when the Fed had the pedal to the metal on this stuff of the 2010s, our economic growth was weak. It was anemic. Productivity growth was anemic. Wages were stagnant. And, you know, luckily wages did start to climb a little bit starting in 2019, you know, barely eking out gains after decades of, of stagnation. But those gains, quite tragically, have been wiped out by inflation. And the, the problem is twofold. When, when the Fed does these policies, 
it's it's putting stimulus into the banking system and that can only really affect the world in one way which is to make debt cheap and to increase debt among households corporations and the united states government um, these are debt bubbles that are very similar to the housing market bubble uh, it, it's great for corporations to be able to borrow at low interest rates but eventually they either need to roll that debt over and you know they either need to roll over the corporate bond or they need to pay it and these companies are leveraging up leveraging up leveraging up taking on more debt and it puts them in a fragile position i mean let me just say inflation is running at 7% right now the highest level since 1982 and there are limits to how much you can boost prosperity through money printing. That's why it can't work indefinitely, in my opinion. That's why it has to stop. And, and we're seeing it right now. The Fed is, you know, facing hot price inflation. And so therefore, it's going to have to tighten. And when that happens, these market prices are going to fall again. And, you, you know, I think it's at that juncture that you start to see the shortcomings in this kind of policy. I certainly agree with you that it's it's bad policy. Um, my fear is that a lot of the power centers that you describe that are not antagonized, they don't need things to go well forever. Um, it's the Chuck Prince 2007 while the music is on, we're supposed to dance. Uh, like you get your bonus at the end of the year. You don't need it to, uh, go on times to go on forever. A lot of the power centers do well if times are okay or booming for just a little while. Um, and so, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure that decisions are always made for the greatest long run path. Um, and I would suggest that we go back to the fall of 2018, right? In your book, you do a beautiful job of describing the career trajectory of Jay Powell, um, which I thought I had known quite well, but you you added some, some very interesting scenes. Uh, you noted that when, when Treasury needed someone to go to Congress to basically apologize somewhat for Solomon brothers during the treasury bond fixing and allow them to go forward as a living entity with some Warren Buffett backing. They sent uh, smooth Jerome Powell to, <clears throat> to do treasury's bidding. Um, and you suggest that he has been overall uh, quite accommodating to money and power. He grew up in that setting and he has tended to be accommodating there. Um, and I think you do a really nice job laying out his career trajectory. Um, but I think an interesting thing happened with Powell, which is that as you noted, he was one of the three amigos. He was uneasy with monetary policy in 2011, 2012, 2013. Um, and then even in 2018, he was the reason that the S&P was down low teens in that year, right? Like he was, yeah. he was saying at every opportunity, 
we are going to normalize. Yes, it's taken us a long time, um, but we are going to normalize policy. We are going to let the Fed balance sheet go down. The stuff that we own is going to run off and we are, and <clears throat> we are not going to um, be continuously engaging in, in purchasing. And um, it's termed the Powell pivot in Jan 19 because something happened there. In, in December of 2018, there was a Powell press conference where the market was melting down before Powell got up there. And he gave the most patient press conference of all times where for two and a half hours, he just kept conveying the same information. We are not going to change policy. We are going to let balance sheet run off. And the market, he had to know that the market would be tanking during that time and it didn't face him at all. Um, so that was a Powell that believed in policy normalization that was a Powell that didn't care about markets melting down necessarily. And then something changed. Now, it could be that the market convulsions of Christmas Eve 2018 caused the change. It could be that Powell's uh, frequent phone calls with congressmen caused the change. It could be that Twitter jawboning from Trump changed him, or it could be that he had private meetings with Trump that changed him. I wonder if you have any view on the Powell pivot. It's, it's a great question. And first of all, it's, you know, to me, that was a time period that is just fascinating. 2018 is when, as you say, the Fed is trying to normalize, okay? Meaning they're trying to kind of slowly raise interest rates and slowly draw down the amount of money they're pumping into Wall Street through quantitative easing and draw down their balance sheet. And to kind of get back to our earlier question, it, it, it points to this issue of why not just keep doing it? Why not do it forever? Why not keep interest rates at zero forever? Keep the balance sheet giant. It's because people who know how the system works realize that there is danger in that. You're going to stoke inflation. You're going to create massive asset bubbles. These, this stimulative program of easy money has its costs. If it didn't, then everybody would be doing it all the time, every day, forever. Jay Powell knows that. And that's why the Fed was trying to normalize. And in this period of like 2017, 2018 is so fascinating because they're trying to pull back slowly and gradually and have that kind of so-called soft landing. And it, the reality showed how hard that is because, you know, for a decade, the Fed was patiently pushing this money into risky investments and riskier debt. And then as the Fed tries to normalize, the markets react rationally and that money starts to withdraw itself from risk assets. And so, what happened is in December of 2018, Powell is saying, hey, we're on, quote, autopilot. We are going to tighten. We are going to do this. And the market says, OK, fine. In, in a 2%, 3% interest rate world, we're going to start taking our money out of this leveraged loans and corporate debt and all the rest of it. And in, in December 2018, you see a synchronized and scary downturn in the markets. OK, all this stuff starts falling together, stuff that the Fed has inflated. 
And that leads to the all important moment you're asking me about in January of 2019, when Powell just 180 degrees switches course and says, did I say automatic pilot? I'm sorry. I mean, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to stop. We're going to pause. We're going to let the market recover. Now, Will history show one day? I don't think we frankly will ever know. Was it a phone call from Donald Trump? Was it a phone call from Larry Fink uh, at Blackstone on Wall Street? Uh, Was it a phone call from Jamie Dimon? Was it Powell's own internal recognition that this tightening is going to create a chaos in the market that we don't want to deal with politically? You know, regardless of who pushed it, The Fed followed the playbook it had been following for years, which is to back off, which is to back off and keep pumping the easy money into Wall Street, which brings us to this big question that we've been talking about, about the Fed not antagonizing the powers that be, you know, the Black Rocks, the Carlyle Groups, the JP Morgans and the Goldman Sachs of the world don't fight what the Fed is doing for the simple reason that these institutions benefit as the bubble goes on the way up. They they collect the fees, they close the deals, they make a ton of money. And then when the crash happens, they are personally insulated from the damage because the Fed will step in as it always does. You know, uh, when, when Jay Powell pivoted, what the Fed is saying is like, whoa, we'll cushion you. And, and there was that Powell pivot when he stopped tightening. But then, you know, there's the bigger thing we talk about of the so-called Fed put. And, and a put is a financial contract whereby you agree to buy an asset at a certain price. It creates a floor under, under that asset. The Fed put is the promise that when the bill starts coming due, when the rubber hits the road, when the markets start to panic, the Fed will be there to print more money. And, and it will certainly be there to bail out the specific institutions, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, BlackRock, they're going to be totally fine. And I apologize if I said Blackstone or BlackRock, I, I mess that up sometimes. But, you know, the giant Larry Fink hedge fund. So these in- institutions will be just fine and support these policies because, again, these Fed easy money policies pump up asset prices, which is, you know, the bread and butter uh, for, for Wall Street. So, you know, the Powell pivot is instructive. And I'll just leave aside the fact that everybody back then was talking about how Donald Trump was bullying Jay Powell. And I mean, for goodness sake, forget Donald Trump. It's the stock market that bullies the Fed chairperson. It's the market for bonds, for leveraged loans. That's what bullies them. And now we're in this position today, uh, January 2022 wherein the Fed is being forced to normalize. They don't want to, but they're going to have to because the only, you know, again, we get back to price inflation, which is raging. The only way to really tamp down this inflation is for the Fed to tighten and normalize. But the markets are going to react as they're reacting right now. The, the markets are falling precipitously. They're rearranging themselves around a higher interest rate world. Is the Fed going to follow through? on its promise, again, that it will tighten. That's the open question that we're all facing right now. You mentioned the repo crisis of early September, 2019. Yes. Um, That was something that 
maybe a few people predicted, right? Like, um, I don't know, I, in your acknowledgments, you mention someone who is a genius who walked you through the money market plumbing. Um, it might have been the person you were referring to that you sat down with in 2016 for four or five hours at the hedge fund. Is it the same? Is that the same person? No, no, no. This guy. This, this, then, then it was the initial Z something in the acknowledgments, right? ZC or something? Right. So people will think that it's ZP, right? Because at the time, Zoltan was writing pieces predicting that this uh, problem in the plumbing would. So you'll have to let us know in the future if it's if it if it is in fact Zoltan. Um, but um, if it's helpful, I don't know who Zoltan is. Okay, um, Zoltan works uh, for a small team where he uh, is specializing in the intricacies of money market plumbing, and he was a few days before the repo crisis, essentially saying that it was going to happen. And, and listen, dude, I'm not trying to be coy and like, I know that I'm not covering Watergate or something, but it's very helpful to me as a reporter to get to really talk to people who know what's going on and they can talk to me in total anonymity and not have to worry about seeing their names in print. I find that that really lets people speak candidly. So I love protecting the identity of my sources, but at the same time, I feel really obligated when these people spend a lot of time with me and share their wisdom and insight uh, that I need to thank them, you know, and, and, and I uh, listen, you got to necessarily be relatively intelligent to be a reporter. And I've dug through a lot of complicated stuff, but I do not put a high value on my intelligence. I put a value on my skill to like talk to people who know what's going on and to have an honest and open ear so that I can hear them. Uh, my journalism is driven entirely by sources. I'm, I'm the synthesizer and that's it. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I'm not trying to be cute or whatever about this guy ZC. It was a funny, uh, joke for him to see that and um my way to try to tip the hat and and certainly acknowledge that i didn't come up with this stuff alone and it was a phone call from that guy who said are you paying attention to the repo markets right now and i i was on the road at the time actually doing uh stuff for that book Cokeland, and and i wasn't so i'm sitting here in a hotel room reading through this and the the repo market meltdown of 2019 is very instructive. And this guy Zoltan or Zoltan sounds like somebody, you know, there's, there's this group of people who understand the plumbing and they're not tied up in all this high-minded Fed theory about how the world is supposed to work. They understand how the real world really does work. And it was that kind of group of people who understood the significance of this market meltdown in 2019 in September. I mean, the, the repo markets are somewhat obscure. They don't really get talked about uh, in the mainstream press, but this is an overnight loan market that is, is literally the lifeblood of Wall Street. It's these super safe, supposedly overnight loans that companies use to keep the lights on and fund their positions. And in September, 2019, the repo rate, which is supposed to be very low and very safe rate, the repo rate jumps from about two and a half percent for an overnight loan to 10%. That, that's like a Lehman Brothers meltdown number. That's like a crazy uh, market that is melting down. And this was, I believe it was 
I'm going to get the date wrong. It was September 2019. I want to say it was September 6th, the, the Monday. Yeah, I, I believe that's correct. You know, that's the day it all goes haywire. And I interviewed the president of the New York Fed and, and Lori Logan, who runs the market division and understood how they were seeing this meltdown happen. And it's important because this was the time when the Fed was trying to normalize they were trying to draw out the money. They were trying to draw down that cash they had injected into Wall Street, and they were trying to raise interest rates. And September 6th is when they hit the red line, whereby the system started to readjust in a wrenching fast way. And um, it does take a little bit of time to walk through it. And I, I kind of try to lay it out in the book, but the, the short answer is, bank reserves kind of got to this level where the banks were hesitant to keep extending these super safe repo loans. And JP Morgan was saying, no, I'm sorry, sir, we are not going to fund your loan even at 8% for a supposedly 100% safe overnight loan backed by a treasury bill. That's a financial panic. And the Fed had to step in and offer repo loans itself at subsidized rates, and then eventually pump 400 billion back into the banking system through more quantitative easing, because they couldn't let the system melt down. And to me, it reminds me of like in Miami or whatever, when you see these floods on a sunny day that are coming from climate change and the rising sea levels, it's sunny day flooding. This was a sunny day financial panic. And it just shows how, how deeply committed the Fed is to pumping stimulus into Wall Street now just to keep the system afloat. Yes, it was a it was a very very interesting time and the the story that you tell of the relative value hedge funds that were in trouble um I think didn't really become clear until a month later and Powell's language in all of 2019 was essentially tortured language justifying the Powell pivot, right? Because he never he never came out and said, oh, we changed our mind. It was a it was a slow change in language. And as he was justifying the aggressive uh, repo intervention, um again the language was misleading. And it was misleading because he said that it was a technical intervention in markets and the consequence of it would not be an increase in the Fed balance sheet. And um, he emphasized the idea that repo has reverse in it, right? Like uh, it's a trade of of bonds for cash that is subsequently reversed. Um, and so there's no net impact on, on money supply. Um, now what he said five weeks later was kind of what anyone with foresight would see all along that the cause of the repo crisis was the financial system essentially choking on government debt too much of it relative to the level of reserves that, and the a short-term fix of increasing the repo facility would not work unless either the size of the repo was increased and extended indefinitely, which did happen, or you do a, a level of 
quantitative easing and increase the level of reserves, which also did happen. Um, but he, he hid in the language of short-term technical interventions for a couple weeks. The market, the market though, um, was in retrospect quite sophisticated in seeing that what mattered was the increase in the Fed balance sheet that was occurring and the S&P during that time was really moving on that number, I feel like. What, what an important point. And it's sort of this frustrating, frustrating world to live in as, as someone who's trying to be a reporter covering this in the sense that you've got the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, getting up and in, in profoundly calm and clinical tones, you know, saying nothing to see here, folks, move on uh, that we had to. And, you know, using this language that makes no uh, doesn't land with with normal people talking about technical fixes, uh, describing it as a plumbing issue. OK, you got that going on. But then you're talking to people in the markets and, and they're not like obligated in any way to use this kind of language. They know exactly what's going on. They know the Fed's going to pump more money and they know the Fed has to do it. And they're just positioning themselves around it. And they're talking in really clear terms about what's happening. And, and, and you're exactly right in the beginning when this repo crisis hits. And I can't overstate enough. September 2019, not a single case of COVID recorded anywhere on earth as far as I know. This is before the pandemic. The markets melt down. It, it just shows how um, deeply distorted the system is and how trapped the Fed is and needing to pump money in to keep the system going. So, so at this time, we have the repo market meltdown. And as you say, Jay Powell is saying this is going to be a temporary thing. And, and what the Fed did was it actually stepped into the market and offered repo loans itself, printing money to offer repo loans at an extremely subsidized low rate. You know, they're offering repo loans at I think around 2% instead of 10%. But as I as I try to say, like that number of a 9% repo loan isn't just like a flashing red light on a computer monitor. It really is telling a story. And the story it tells is that somebody out there has borrowed a lot of money in repo markets at 2% it, let's say, or really probably lower than that 1%. And on Tuesday morning or Monday morning, JP Morgan is not willing to renew that loan at 8%. What's going on? Well, I think JP Morgan knows something. And, and, and so Jay Powell is trying to talk about it in the short-term um, context, which of course fell apart very quickly. And the Fed had to step in and print $400 billion in quantitative easing. And, and to the point you've made, Jay Powell said this isn't quantitative easing um, because we we don't call it that, basically. You know, that was, you know, everybody on Wall Street just laughed about it and called it NQE, which is not quantitative easing, but they knew what it was. And that money, as it flowed in and those subsidized repo loans, bailed out this group of hedge funds that had taken on immense risk, highly levered up, meaning borrowing, uh, I think, 10 to 1 against treasury bills, borrowing all this money to make this complicated trade, a three-part trade as a risk basis trade that I explained, 
But, you know, they were making this bet that the treasury markets are going to be flat and stable and the, everything's going to, we're not going to see volatility and the Fed will keep repo loans low, but that wasn't the case. Repo loans spiked and these hedge funds were going to lose their shirt. No question about it. The whole trade falls apart. So when the Fed stepped in, this is what I'm trying to point out is that when the Fed steps in and solves that, Jay Powell describes it as plumbing. But the incredibly relieved owners of these hedge funds understand it as a bailout. Thank God the Fed stepped in and offered them this repo loan. They could start to unwind, not, not just unwind their position, but take on more of it as, as happened. So it's, it's policy that is creating real world winners and losers. And it's described as completely clinical, technical plumbing matters. And I don't think that that's helpful. Uh, and, and I think people deserve to understand in a much more clear way what's going on. Yes, it was a, it was a fascinating time, um, but it was soon swept away in history as COVID hit. And then you had truly unprecedented Fed response in March of 2020. Um, fascinating chapters in your book when you're explaining that era when uh, Powell and Mnuchin are talking 20 times a day by phone and uh, actions, emergency meetings are happening via Zoom on a Sunday and and so forth. Um, and that really launched us into a new, even more aggressive era. No question. I mean, that, and that's the absolutely wild economic system we live in today. Um, you know, in 2020, uh, of course, COVID is an unprecedented global economic crisis, the likes of which we've never seen. We've never had to shut down the entire global supply chain in a hurry, uh, get everyone inside their houses, and then you know, in a matter of months, try to restart the whole system again. That's chaos. I mean, that that's an economic crisis, and I'm not. I don't mean to downplay it at all. But an important point that I think that got missed is that crisis collided with a financial system that was what the Wall Street guys call priced to perfection, with stock prices at super high levels, uh, corporate debt prices at super high levels. These companies that are up to their eyeballs in leveraged loan debt that have to meet their payments, okay? You're closing down your shop now, you're closing down your chain of restaurants, you're closing down your hotels, your cruise lines, your airlines, you name it. Well, they still have to meet their corporate debt payments or sell the debt. The whole system started to fall apart and it wasn't just COVID. It was the fact that this highly fragile and inflated financial system that the Fed had been patiently pumping up for a decade was not in any way uh, resilient enough to withstand a shock. And the whole thing started to collapse. And, and I said earlier, the Fed printed 300 or more years worth of money between 08 and 14. In a few months in 2020, the Fed printed 300 years worth of money, 2.9 trillion to step in and, and not just bail out banks, which is what the Fed was built to do. Okay, It was built to bail out otherwise healthy banks during a panic. But in this case, God, I interviewed Janet Yellen at this time, okay? I interviewed Janet Yellen at this time, and, and she's, as you well know, a, a dove of doves, very pro-intervention. And she told me, you know, the Fed is fulfilling its role 
they're the lender of last resort to the entire economy. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing her quote. I, it, I'm pretty sure I put that quote in this article. I wrote about it at the time for Time Magazine. But what she was saying was, to me, breathtaking in its implication, which is that the Fed's not just here to bail out banks. They're here to bail out the collateralized loan obligation industry, the corporate debt dealers, um, you know, the, the stock market, you name it. The Fed is there to print money and bail out everybody. The Fed put has no horizon. It's, it's got no limit. And, and that's what the Fed showed in 2020. And as you know, I mean, they did things that even the, the hardened bond trader types were just stunned by. The Fed said, hey, we're going to directly purchase corporate debt. We're going to purchase loans uh, given to mid-sized small business through Main Street lending, which never really took off, but they said they were going to do it. Uh, they directly bought securitized corporate debt in, in the form of CLOs. The Fed put was shown to just have no limit, and the, the you know the Fed balance sheet that we've talked about so much, which kind of reflects the size of the Fed footprint. That balance sheet rises from underneath four trillion to above eight trillion now, and growing today, still growing. Uh, the Fed is still doing permanent, semi-permanent QE, uh, which they say that they're going to pull back on, but. Uh, that's when, in, in, you know, you look at this graph of, of the Fed's money printing, and there's this huge uptick during 2020, and then this huge uptick. We've we've changed the graph again, and it, I have to emphasize when the Fed did this in 2020 during COVID, they it it was a a lightning fast, highly effective bailout that saved Wall Street and asset owners. Stock prices recovered their total losses within a matter of months. But it didn't just bail out the big banks and, and Wall Street. It encouraged even more speculation. It overheated the markets. You know, corporate debt after being saved went on to assume even more debt, break more records, reach record levels. The same is true with the stock market. So all this is a way of kicking the can down the road and making the can bigger. And again, bringing us to this kind of terrible point in 2022, where the Fed is, is either going to have to tighten to fight inflation and face a market crash, or keep the markets propped up and just kind of play with fire and hope that inflation doesn't truly take root and become an inflationary spiral like we had in the 70s. I mean, so it's not a great uh, position we're in. When we were talking about the Powell pivot, you mentioned uh, maybe Powell would get a a call from some of the big asset custodians, uh, someone like Larry Larry Fink of BlackRock. And um, one of the things we learned in March 2020 was that the the exit door for withdrawals was even smaller than we thought, right? And that maybe in a future crisis, the systematically important institutions are no longer your Bank of America, but your holders of retirement assets of your big ETFs, right? The Black Rocks, Fidelities, State Streets of the world. Um, and so um, I think as markets were melting down, in some cases, 10% a day, uh, we were we were learning that that these institutions were more fragile than we had thought, and um, a retrospective is perhaps that the Fed was really acting on 
on those institutions. Or an alternative explanation is that because the economy has become so levered and in any crisis, cash is king, we found that if, if the participants all try to go to cash at once, then uh, you have a sea of zeros. Yes. And that's, uh, as you know, that's what happened. It was remarkable. Um, everybody, that's a great way to put it. Everybody tried to go to cash at once globally at the same time. And one of the things that I, you know, bored in on was in, in March, 2020, that the treasury market froze. That's how bad the panic was. People couldn't sell us debt or treasury bills. Uh, the Financial Times said, you know, analysts said such a thing wasn't supposed to be possible, and 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 yet it happened. And so, the point you're making now brings me back again to this idea of antagonizing the power structures, which is just something that our elected leaders have refused to do for decades. And and, and what do I mean by that? You know, in the crash of 08, 09, the phrase too big to fail, what entered the lexicon, it became understood and widely known. And our government did absolute, well, our government did virtually nothing to address it. Okay. I talk about this stuff in the book. The character Tom Honig actually leaves the Federal Reserve and goes to be a bank regulator at the FDIC. And he, in 2012, proposed structural change to the system that would reduce risk. He proposed this guy who's a conservative, you know, from Kansas City, talks about breaking up the big banks. I mean, more of a structural reformer than even Elizabeth Warren. And his whole point is this will reduce systemic risk. Needless to say, he was basically driven out of town by the bank lobbyists. And, and so the system we have now is one wherein the two big to fail banks have gotten even larger since 08, 09. Since the crash, they've become larger, less able to fail. They have to jump through these hoops with the regulators every year of producing these like reports called stress tests in which they, you know, soberly show how they could survive another crash uh, and argue over the numbers. And I'd like to point out that when the crash actually came in 2020, these banks were lined up at the Fed's door for emergency loans like Monday after, you know, dragging their heels on these stress tests for years. Uh, and, but then along with the too big to fail banks, you've got the shadow banking system. You're talking about the extenders of private credit, the Carlisle groups and the Black Rocks that have operate outside of the regulatory structure that we put on the banks, uh, the Dodd-Frank bill. You know, these these entities can operate outside of that. And by doing what it's done, the Fed has helped pump much more money into the shadow banking system, which is just doing what they do. They're they're pumping up risk. They're pumping up debt. They're they're buying. They're creating and selling, you know, risky corporate debt, um, among many other things. And so now they have to be in, included in the Fed put. And, and so this is a very important, I think, very important structural issue that has to be understood as to what we're talking about when we say that the Fed is pumping up income inequality and benefiting a certain segment of society through these easy money programs uh, and, and not benefiting you know, wage earners, uh, for example. 
and 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 why these policies are protected by the powerful. It's just really the way I'd put it. Um, the, the powerful don't hammer down on you necessarily for talking about doing more quantitative easing. There, there is a failure of public understanding, which you're trying to rectify with this book and with your, with your public outreach. Um, there's a, a frustration that reveals itself in the political process, but the frustration doesn't know quite where to put the finger. Well, that is a very good way to put it. Um, you know, the, the tension and anxiety and stress that is increasing on most wage earners in America uh, spills over eventually. Um, again, one of the things I've, this is my third book, and I just, I keep talking about this economic system we have now where you can have a decade of growth and, and major economic gains and, and enormous wealth that is captured by a small group of people. And then you've got this huge bulk of people. Okay, right now we're talking about stoking up asset prices. Let's talk about the bottom half uh, of in, on the income scale of Americans. So half of America owns 7% of the assets in this country. Uh, so half of America owns 7% of the assets, the top 1% owns 40%. But you know, these folks out here, the bottom half of the country are still trying to make a living, uh, raise families, deal with their job, deal with these increasingly complicated systems like health insurance and all the rest of it. And, and the stress and the tension is increasing, as we know, every year. And yes, there's this sort of deep question of where do we point this finger? This cliche has now been beaten into the ground. The system is rigged. And, and I think it's a job of business journalists to simply try to describe how the system is working in clear terms so that you know citizens can debate this stuff and figure out which way to move forward. But the tension is increasing dramatically. And I keep coming back to this guy, Tom Honig. He's a main character in the book alongside Jay Powell. And I think they're kind of two sides of the coin one guy tried to fight the system in Tom Honig, and he got pushed to the fringes. One guy, Jay Powell, knows how to accommodate the system, and he's been promoted to chairman of the Fed. But when Tom Honig was trying to break up the banks in 2012, he made this argument, by the way, to a big convention of bankers, wherein he said, if we keep doing this, there's a social element, there's a social angle, there's a social component. If people see we're bailing out banks, and the, the vast majority of the population is just sort of left to fend for themselves, that's when you start to see a loss of faith in our society, a growing cynicism, uh, not just skepticism, but cynicism, this belief that the system isn't working for them, and it leads to social instability. And like I think it goes without saying, we're seeing that on a huge scale right now. Well, Chris, this is this has been a tremendous interview. I think this is one of my all-time favorite podcasts. I, I really, really appreciate this time. Well, thank you. I'm not trying to be obsequious, but it was one of my favorite interviews because I really appreciate how you, you know, read through the book and, and brought up all these interesting points about it. So I really appreciate your time. Hopefully we can do a, a part two later this year or uh, next year. Yeah, let's see. It's going to be an interesting year, I think. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you.